From the glimmering skyline of Austin to the sweeping plains of Lubbock, college students are driving an increase in cases of COVID-19. I think we're going to this up tonight. <laughs> I'm going to be the truckers tonight. Some of them are throwing pandemic parties. After all, social gratification is a basic need etched in the wiring of their still developing brains. So it's a monumental task to ask young adults to basically act against their nature. For schools that would rather not take on this task, shutting the doors and staying online is risky too. There are certainly some number of small liberal arts colleges that are actually going out of business pretty much every year. It's all coming up on Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio. Charter buses from El Paso idled their engines outside a huge stadium in Austin, Texas. More than 15,000 people stream into the building. We're at the University of Texas. Usually this is Bevo Boulevard, a packed street party. But today... Uh, it is remarkably boring and I haven't taken a photograph uh, in the last hour and a half. Ed Malchik has lived in Austin for years and he likes photographing the chaos of the party, but this year it's different. A lot of the pregame rituals like Bevo Boulevard and tailgates are banned because of COVID-19. And UT said masks would be required, but... Uh, look around you, there's three people there without masks. There's another over there. Uh, there's one person behind me. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people coming in uh, without masks. Even with fewer people on the streets, there's still that excitement, that buzz in the air, that energy of college football in Texas. The usual stadium capacity is about 100,000, but that's been cut to a maximum of 25,000 to allow for physical distancing. So the people at this game feel safe, right? I don't, but my son's playing and I'm not gonna miss him playing on this field. So there we are, fingers crossed. Michelle Burns and tens of thousands of other people are back in college stadiums across the country. And so are students in classrooms, dorms, frat houses, and co-ops. Many schools are placing the burden of reopening safely squarely on the shoulders of students. But is that wise? Um, I honestly think it's BS, <laughs> um, quite frankly. Um, Some students, like UT senior Serena Ermitano, are not thrilled about it. I don't believe that UT's overall response um, is really enough to, I guess, stop the spread. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, colleges and COVID-19. So colleges are back. Kind of. More and more universities are actually going into temporary shutdowns because of COVID-19 outbreaks. And some have already sent students back home again, just like last semester. 
while some colleges, like UT Austin, allow activities that fly in the face of public health recommendations. And some students are engaging in risky behavior. We'll head back to UT Austin later in the show. But first... I think we'll be the f- this up tonight. <laughs> I'm going to be the truckers tonight. <laughs> yeah, at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, students are partying. And posting videos of the parties on social media. Pandemic parties in living rooms and backyards all across Lubbock. Off campus, we're seeing a lot of parties, a lot of large gatherings, and there's just, there's not a ton the university can do. Texas Tech Public Media's Sarah Self Walbrick has been covering the party scene there for a while. The university has no jurisdiction off campus where most of the student body lives, but some of these areas have a mixed population, so it's not like students are the only people at risk. Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern about what is happening there and how that's going to affect the community at large. I think there's a public health expert that I've talked with a few times through this who put it really well that it would be different if Texas Tech was on an island. I'm concerned about gatherings that don't have rules in place, that haven't gone through an approval process. I'm concerned about, you know, 50 people in a backyard without masks on. The city of Lubbock's health department director, Catherine Wells, is mainly concerned about off-campus gatherings that don't have any structure. She's not seeing the problems in classes. It's outside of the classroom that she's worried about. And we're seeing lots of photos and videos of that exact scenario playing out across the country. It's really something. But of course, it's not all students doing this. Smile. To be on Twitter. To be blasted. For a COVID party, you f***ing idiots. Yeah, so two students on campus started a Twitter account called TTU COVID Watch, where they are sharing posts anonymously that they find on social media or that has been sent to them through direct messages. A lot of this started as a way to kind of shame and expose the students who were partying, but it's turned into something much bigger. We're seeing a lot of complaints about what's happening in the dorms. There's been some concerns from faculty submitted to that account. Um, And basically, so people submit their concerns or posts or whatever through a direct message. And then this TTU COVID Watch account tweets it. They often tag the university and the president. They are aware of this account and what's being shared on it. Um, The TTU Dean of Students has actually directly interacted with the account. They're watching it closely and, again, encouraging students to report these concerns directly to the office and not just on social media. But this account has really kind of empowered students, I think, and helped to show what's really happening on campus in an honest way. These videos provide evidence that Texas Tech students are likely behind a local surge in cases. 
students moved back in early and mid-August, and a couple of weeks later, the city set a series of new records for daily COVID-19 cases. Lubbock Mayor Dan Pope compared the situation to a football game. A couple of weeks ago, we had taken a bit of a lead. We we battled back from behind in June where we dealt with some serious spread and we in early July and we, we'd taken a lead and and but we knew that the, the opponent was uh, still there and I feel like uh, yesterday afternoon we threw an interception for a touchdown for the you know for the opposing team and so we're going to continue to stay the course there's a lot of game to be played and I want to remind you of that and that's not what you want to hear but that's where we are. Right. So now if Lubbock and Texas Tech specifically continue to lose this game, the university will follow in the footsteps of the University of Colorado Boulder, Notre Dame and a lot of other big schools. So the plan would be a micro closure. What Texas Tech is looking at is stopping in-person classes for probably two weeks and asking students to self-isolate, whether they live on campus or off campus, stay inside their homes. And um, hopefully over that two weeks, that would mitigate the spread of the virus. Thank you, Sarah, for your fantastic reporting on this. Okay, so now let's go back to UT Austin, where we started. Petri Dish producer Dominic Anthony Walsh is driving on 6th Street, the central hub of Austin's nightlife. Now, to be clear, bars can't be open right now. But a couple of weeks before the game, the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission loosened some of the restrictions, making it easier for bars to operate as restaurants. So... A lot of bars that were previously closed were able to reopen, and capacity limits don't apply at all in outdoor spaces like patios. Yes, it looks like a lot of people are out actually watching the game on 6th Street. So you have thousands of people over at the stadium watching the game in person, as we established not many masks. And then people at these bars uh, along 6th Street also watching the game, also, you know, not wearing masks once they get uh, to some of these outdoor patios where capacity restrictions don't apply, mask rules don't apply once they have their drinks, and it's, it's pretty crowded over here. Dominic heads from 6th Street toward West Campus, where a lot of UT students live. So I'm on Guadalupe Street right now, driving right along UT's campus. I see a lot of student groups uh, without masks, very little social distancing. Definitely not what uh, UT wanted its students to be doing right now. And I'm almost at the co-op. The destination is on your left. All right, so Dominic is at the Taos Co-op. It's a five-story residential building that looks a bit rough from the outside. It's a brick building with a weathered red banner stretching around the perimeter that reads Taos Cooperative Affordable Student Housing. Now, if you're like me and there weren't any co-ops at your college and you're not familiar with the concept of cooperative living, I'll let the Taos Co-op director explain. Okay, how to begin, honestly. Um, I would say it's a more democratic version of any sort of like regular housing. Um, so in traditional apartment housing, you have a landlord that um, kind of tells you exactly like what, 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 you're, what you're paying for rent and what you get out of it. Um, but here at a co-op, we have a governance system um, that lets us dictate how much we want to raise our rent and how we want to take care of our spaces. 
That's Serena Ermitano. She's a senior at UT. Serena and other students run this building. Do, I, do you want to see this on basement? Serena takes Dominic to the sub-basement, where the co-op hosts comedy open mics in non-pandemic times, of course. So there's very little ventilation, and it's pretty tight space. So the whole area is closed off, and open mics are canceled because of COVID, of course. So they head up again. Okay, so you're looking at, um, I guess, a sort of three-tiered seating situation. Um, I can't describe this very well. It's like a, I don't know, it's almost like a giant, like, church pew, but very comfortable and, like, it's, like, kind of velvety. And there's, like you said, three tiers. And, uh, I mean, I, I can see why this would be closed. Like, it would be hard to do some social distancing in here. But, yeah, this is, a, this is such a cute space. What do, you, what do you call it? The TV temple. <laughs> This common space is also closed due to COVID. So the co-op adopted a quarantine policy for anyone who tests positive. This student-run living space even has a rough contact tracing system. Um, we just kind of figured it out on our own um, because um, we did have someone actually have to self-quarantine because they were secondary contact. And so um, we took the extra measure to figure out any secondary contacts within the house um, and ask them to self-quarantine. And there are consequences for those who don't consider others. Any resident who puts the co-op community at a reckless level of danger in regard to COVID can actually be held accountable under the harassment policy for ableism because this virus has a disproportionate impact on people with diabetes, asthma, and who are immunocompromised. Still, Serena thinks the university will shift the blame for any outbreaks to students. So while she understands the appeal of returning students for in-person classes. I think the reality is UT should be all totally closed. Um, all of our classes should be online because all of these things where we're open at like this weird number of capacity and still hosting football games is really, to me, an incentive for people to move back and have these gatherings. Right. So there are some students who think the university is doing a great job and, and they're thrilled to be back. And there are other students who think the university is doing a terrible job. Good. 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 And guess who's been talking to all of them? I, it's so I'm so happy to have you guys back for another edition of Senior Reporter Pitch Meeting. Journalists, All right, in this case, um, young journalists, the University of Texas at Austin has a great so, journalism program and an wow. esteemed independent campus newspaper, The Daily Texan. Instead of in-person pitch meetings now, though, editors and reporters chat over Zoom. Just because I feel like they can get you the analytics sooner. They cover stories you won't find elsewhere in Austin. It looks like your other pitch that we liked, that, and we wanted because the link to it didn't work, but about the anonymous empathy line. Oh, yeah. That was weird. Um, I don't even know how I found that, but it's, um, I don't even know if... But because UT is UT, there are also national stories on this campus. 
Contact tracing is what helped public health officials identify a whole cluster of students who traveled to Cabo San Lucas over spring break, 64 of them testing positive for the virus. In a new report published by the CDC today, it's... That was a big one. One of the first major clusters in Austin that we know of. The Daily Texan has been all over the UT COVID beat since March when the virus started really affecting life in Austin. Of course, March is when COVID really started affecting life everywhere. I'd already been covering it since late January, but March is when the pandemic became reality for all Americans and pretty much all reporters started covering it. It was an intense time. I think you could definitely describe it as chaos. Megan Menchaca is the managing editor of The Daily Texan. And it was very much like a little, like a tsunami where you kind of see it's coming up the coast, and then it hits when South by Southwest was canceled, that was in early March, we kind of knew that the dominoes were falling. As the dominoes fell, the paper converted from a daily print edition to online only. And keep in mind, the Daily Texan staff, they're students too. If they lived on campus, they had to leave. If they had an on-campus job or a job at a bar or a restaurant, they lost that income. It was definitely a big scramble to have reporters adjust while they were also being kicked out of their dorms, moving back home, losing their jobs. Um, but we, uh, had, we had to adjust because we had to serve the UT community that was being dramatically affected and effectively traumatized by all of these series of events. So the spring and summer passed. Those students were able to get a bit more settled into this new sort of reality, this new normal we're living in, while also covering important stories for the community. And here we are. It's the fall semester with tens of thousands of University of Texas students and faculty members back in Austin. So there are more than 1,250 cases among staff, students, and faculty since March. More than 700 this semester alone. But dorms are probably the places with the highest levels of congregation, hundreds of students in each hall. Are there any outbreaks in student residences? We have reported on 11 cases of COVID-19 in, student, in, in various student residence halls, and seven of those are in on-campus housing residence halls while four are in an off-campus dorm. These dorms are huge, home to thousands of students, and the university isn't staying entirely silent when there's a positive case in dorms. They're notifying certain secondary contacts, but only those contacts, no public notice. So let's say I live on the fifth floor and I get COVID-19. A lot of other people on that floor use the same bathroom as I do, so everyone on the fifth floor gets a notification. But people on other floors could have shared an elevator, walked past a positive person on the stairs, but no notification for them. Now, the Daily Texan has actually obtained some of those notifications to secondary contacts. Is the number larger? We don't know. We have no way to, and the university, when we asked, the university has told us, if you ask us to confirm uh, this case, or if you ask us how many cases are in residence halls, we won't tell you. I mean, it's not, it's not on us as journalists to say what is the right amount of information, but obviously as journalists, we want to have the most information possible so that we can release that to the public. You know, the whole thing about journalism is sharing information with people so they can be more informed. And so that's what the Texan has essentially been fighting for 
more than we've ever been doing to get as much information as we can. This is an issue that student journalists across the country are running into, and it's not new. Universities hold information close to their chest, often citing FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, and now HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. But UT actually points to an additional reason, a more abstract reason, tied to the wiring of our brains. You know, we don't we, we don't want to um, to be sending out alerts every time that we find out about a, a particular case. It's something he calls alarm fatigue. Who's he? Sure. So name and title, um, Art Markman. He hosts the Two Guys on Your Head podcast with KUT, Austin's NPR station, and... I am a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas, and also I was the head of the academics working group for planning for the fall semester for UT. And as a professor of psychology, he says constant COVID notifications can cause a couple of problems. Information in the absence of of the ability to act on that information creates more anxiety than it does positive behavior. And anxiety tends not to lead to good behavior. Uh, a small amount of anxiety isn't so bad if it, if it, if it gets you to think twice about doing something uh, that, that, that maybe you shouldn't do. But chronic anxiety is, is, you know, can ultimately lead to feelings of helplessness. Like, what does it matter what I do? At which point you start seeing a lot of bad behavior. So UT believes too much transparency about COVID-19 could lead to more anxiety and worse behavior. UT shares some information with students. We're trying to provide students with actionable information that, that when there's something that we feel like by telling the students there's, informa- there's something they can do with that information, for example, engage with our, with our testing pro- protocols, then, 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 then we, we provide that information. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, and then for people who want a general sense of, of what things look like on campus, we have our dashboard that provides the overall picture of what we're doing. Because we we certainly want people to feel like they understand the big picture um, uh, so that they understand what the state of the campus is. You can see more than 800 faculty, staff and students have tested positive for COVID-19 over the past month. The Texas Tribune did a big analysis recently. It looked at counties with big populations of college students like Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas State in Hayes and Texas A&M in Brazos. And COVID-19 cases in these counties have grown by 34% in about a month. The analysis also looked at the West Campus zip code in Austin, where most of the UT population is. Cases there are rising faster than most other zip codes. At similar points, we've seen other colleges shut down entirely. But Markman says, despite these numbers, UT isn't there yet. As long as we feel like we can stay on top of that process of testing, tracing, and isolating, then we feel confident that we can continue to move forward at the point, if we felt like we reached a point where that process was overwhelmed, then we would really have to take a step back and and do something significantly different. If the university continues to allow students to enter risky settings without adequately enforced safety measures, like the football game, that curve 
could rise rapidly. We asked Markham about the perceived hypocrisy of telling students to follow public health protocols while, at the same time, allowing a gathering to move forward over the objections of public health officials and whether that missed messaging could affect how seriously students take all the other guidance. You know, I, I think that, that, that students are, are constantly trying to read the, the, the tea leaves to understand um, how serious any organization or any authority figure is in, in what they've said. The Austin Public Health Authorities actually toured uh, the facility during the game and, uh, and came back with, a, with, with a, a very positive report about all of the, the, the uh, precautions that were taken, the way that the stadium was organized, the social distancing that was going on. I certainly understand the the, the the degree to which it can look like a mixed message and and certainly um, had had the athletics group not gone through the very careful preparations that they went through, it would it would certainly have sent the wrong message. Austin Public Health has repeatedly said publicly that this type of gathering is not encouraged. If the stadium is filled up to 25% capacity, that's a gathering of 24,990 more people than the current recommended maximum of 10. We sent an open records request to see the department's report, the one Markman called very positive, and it did have eight of what it called positive observations. Things like the Jumbotron, reminding people to wear masks. Good use of directional flow in entrances and hallways to reduce congregation and people facing each other. That's bad, right? And lots of hand sanitizer stations and things like that all over the place. So that's good. But there were a couple of key problems observed in the report, and it really lined up with what Dominic saw on game day. Now, media access inside the stadium was restricted, so he got some steps in. Alrighty, I'm on the uh, southwest side of the stadium on top of a parking garage so I can see inside. So many people are not wearing masks. That was one pillar of UT's plan to start these again. You know, masks would be required. That is not the case. It's not being enforced. People aren't wearing their masks. And masks, as we all know, is one of the most important tools to slow the spread of this virus. CDC Director Robert Redfield is on the record as saying it's the most important tool we have right now. Dominic counted more than 300 without masks out of a group of 600. According to a report obtained by Texas Public Radio, mask compliance in certain sections dropped from about 88% at the start of the game to about 1% after 8 o'clock. That's concerning because it's exactly the setting you need a mask in, right? Lots of aerosolized particles from cheering and yelling, go team. But it was in open air, which helps, and there was physical distancing. Uh, well, uh, so, you know, again, Mark Escott is the Austin Public Health Authority. At this press briefing, he says he's appreciative of the measures UT said it would take. Uh, they ensured people had masks on entry. 
They had people spaced out at the beginning of the game. But, however, saying measures are in place is different than actually enforcing your measures. Uh, you know, we, we had some teams from Austin Public Health at the game. Uh, and what they observed is that as the game progressed, the mask came off and people started gathering close to the field. He didn't get into the specifics we see in the report, but it's the same general message to UT. Nice try, but not enough. And that is a different assessment than what we heard from UT professor Art Markman, right? So we emailed him and he wrote back that he was just passing along what he heard and that we should reach out to the athletics department. So we did, and they declined our request for an interview. A UT rep said the university is where it needs to step up enforcement and that the athletics department began reviewing its protocols immediately after that game. So I have not really gone too many places since March. A lot of us haven't, or if we have, we've tried to be really careful and reduce the risk of getting or spreading this virus, right? So seeing the students at Texas Tech, UT Austin, and schools across the country at these parties, sometimes even when they know they have COVID-19, well, the mom part of me uh, just has to wonder what the heck is going through their heads. Kids behave, right? Yeah, I don't know what's going through their heads at that moment, but one, you know, hypothesis, one guess is that uh, people are really good at rationalizing and, um, you know, convincing themselves of, of things that are not necessarily based in reality. This is Anna Song. I'm an associate professor of health psychology, and I'm the director of the Nicotine and Cannabis Policy Center at UC Merced. So people are pretty good at rationalizing actions that fit their needs, right? Even when that rationalization is based somewhere outside of reality. And college-age kids have an intense need to socialize, right? The question is, how do you battle a lot of these defenses and warping of, of reality that some people engage in so that they can party and meet the needs that they have, which are very socially bound, right? How do we make sure that young adults can connect with each other, have fun, be a part of a community, which is what they're wired to do at this point, um, but do it in a safe way, you know, in the age of COVID. So let's talk about the carrot and the stick. First, the carrot. What about universities recognizing that students have these social needs and finding ways to fulfill them? Like, how can, can we set up and encourage activities that are safe, outdoors, socially distant, um, and that helps, um, you know, people meet that need of needing to connect with each other? But it's in the parameters of we're keeping six feet apart and we're wearing masks. And so it limits, you know, avenues of contagion versus, you know, we're not going to support any kind of social activity. Uh, we're going to pretend like that need doesn't exist. And then what you have are, you know, parties that are trying to go under the radar 
and they they get out of, out of control. Okay, so setting the carrot aside and picking up the stick, what's the right response to a big pandemic party? Now, the parties put the whole campus at risk and other students' chances at an in-person education at risk and the local community around the college. That's at risk, too. So some schools might be inclined to take punitive measures, maybe even suspend or expel students. These punishments are, you know, asking people to basically deny all these impulses, their wiring uh, and their nature, and then to say, we will punish you for it. I worry that instead what will happen is uh, the mode of thought among young people will be, well, I'm going to do it. I just can't get caught. Yeah, suspension is a big deal. I'm not going to get caught. Or uh, other peers saying, yeah, I know this party's going on, but ah, I don't want them to get suspended, so I'm just not going to say anything. Those are the parts of, of policy that I really worry about because when it is that extreme, what ends up happening is that then it just really goes underground. And that's really not what we want to happen. If a party happens and someone there had COVID-19, the most important thing at that moment is to find secondary contacts and have them self-isolate before they spread the virus to other students, faculty, and the surrounding community, and you have yourself an outbreak. If students have potential suspension or expulsion on their minds, though, they are less likely to cooperate with contact tracers, and they're less likely to admit that they've done anything that might get them in trouble. An administration's crackdown hampers a key epidemiological tool. But even if administrators are not waving around the punishment stick, they still aren't necessarily the most effective communicators. I think peer-to-peer is really important. Um, Administrators aren't going to be around all the time, right? So who are students around? They're always with each other. Right. And this gets into social norms. Students ultimately set the tone for other students. Students have taken to Twitter and weaponized shame. It's a powerful tool with some potential unintended side effects. Mm -hmm. I mean, shame is powerful, but it's also directed inwards, right? And it's, you know, the the message that you get with shame is that I'm a bad person. Um, And so when you think about it that way, like being a bad person, that's something immutable, that's something about you, and that's not changeable because it's inherent in you. We're asking people to change, right? Change their behaviors. And so by wielding shame um, and making people feel like a bad person, it's counterintuitive to this idea of we need you to change your behavior. So um, it's powerful, but what we also see um, is that what ends up happening is that people feel like they can't change uh, and uh, they often don't. And then what we see is that, you know, these behaviors go underground. So let's go to a university that, as of this recording, has had fewer than two dozen positive COVID tests. That's counting students and staff since August 1st. Yale. 
How's it keeping its case numbers so low? I asked an associate professor of public health, epidemiology, and psychiatry at Yale about that, and she invited me to a Zoom meeting with some of her students to ask them. So for those of you who are currently on campus, what is your perspective of how Yale's strategies at containing or preventing the spread have been going? So at Yale, Dr. Marnie White is teaching all of her classes on Zoom. I will start off by, oh, go for it. No, 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 please. (laughs) Those are two grad students, Sam Bretkarsh and Lucas Walls. They have thoughts, and so Sam goes first. I think it's, I mean, it's, to use an unloaded word, it's efficient. I mean, the testing is twice a week. There's never crowds at the testing centers, at least my experience. Um, Yesterday, I showed up and there was a whole setup there for flu shots. And so flu shots are done really efficiently and quickly. All Yale undergrads who live on campus are tested for COVID twice a week. Students who live off campus also have the option of being tested twice a week. Yale has an isolation dorm for anyone who tests positive, and they do their two weeks of isolation there. And the university puts contact tracers on each case. Plus, everybody who lives on campus, they are in cohorts. So they really only spend time with people in their pods. They live together in their suites. They eat together with their suite mates, that kind of thing. So it's easier to contact trace. And there are only a handful of in-person classes. Lucas Walls says he went to one and it was as odd as you might expect. It was um, in a classroom and then they were like, in the lecture stand was like glass on three corners around it so that the professor could just do her thing. And all of the students were like spread out very far away and everyone just had their masks on the entire time. What about the students who are off campus? Just kind of what, what are your thoughts and what's your experience? Yeah, I'm at home in Virginia. That's Jenny Tan zooming in from her bedroom at home in Virginia, many, many states away from Connecticut. I think so. Online classes are definitely interesting in that um, there's just like no in-person interaction at all. And um, in terms of like lecture classes, it's definitely okay. But with like smaller seminars or sections, you definitely notice that there's a difference. Um, and I've also noticed that it seems like people might think we have more time, um, to like do work and to be on zoom calls and, but it's, yeah, the reality is that, um, there is still like a lot of time constraint, whole different level of fatigue. And so for me, I've just been trying to find ways to, I guess, adjust to that, um, and see what can be done you know, remotely to help with this. Now, these young adults, Dr. White's students, are students of public health, and White admits they may have a greater understanding of how this pandemic works, how the virus spreads, and how to stop the spread. And they may be more committed to making sacrifices to the normal college social life than students who don't have as much information as they do. So how do you reach all of the other students at Yale and beyond? These people are emerging adults, and we know that they engage in high-risk behaviors. But at the same time, we also know that they are very passionate young adults. And so if we kind of look at college campuses throughout history, college campuses are, are often responsible for making really positive, wonderful things and wonderful change happen. 
appeal to their idealism, White says, and their sense of social responsibility and their natural activism. And, White adds, treat them like the adults that they are. Give them good information. Even antibiotics, you know, typically your physician will say, here, take this full 10 days of antibiotics. And then you probably feel better at about the third or fourth day and maybe forget to take the rest of them. When physicians explain, okay, here's why it's important that you take the full 10-day period. You don't want to strengthen the pathogen that made you sick in the first place. If you stop after day four, then that just makes it more likely that you'll get sicker the next time as well as everyone else. When you basically say, spend that 30 seconds saying, here's why this is important to do this. And here's exactly when we help you overcome some obstacles to make sure that you are able to fulfill that this kind of behavioral assignment. Um, people want to do it. White acknowledges that not every college or university has the extensive resources that Yale does. So young adults typically feel invincible. It's true. And it's normal, part of their brain development we were talking about before. But are they invincible when it comes to COVID? There's some newer information actually that just was published. This this study particularly looked at people aged 18 to 34. So really kind of this younger cohort. So right out of adolescence, early young adults. Dr. Jason Bowling is an infectious diseases expert at UT Health San Antonio, and he's talking about a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in September. And they saw that people aged 18 to 34 accounted for only about 5% of those hospitalizations, um, which goes to what we kind of had suspected, that people that are younger um, tend to have less severe disease. Okay, so that's good. 5% is a fairly small percentage. Now, I will say that the people, that those people in that age group that were hospitalized, uh, 20% of them ended up in the ICU. So it's still a significant disease for people, these young adults, um, if they are sick enough to get hospitalized. And they also saw that people in this age range, if they had underlying medical conditions, particularly morbid obesity, hypertension, or diabetes, they were at almost, they were at equal risk of having significant outcome, adverse outcomes, bad outcomes compared to people that were older, that, you know, older than 34. Oh, so if you do get sick, there is a one in five chance you'll get really sick and a not insignificant number of those who end up in the hospital will die. And the mortality rate in this group that was just recently studied was about 2.7%. So, you know, for, it's lower than what we see in people that are over 65. And we know that people 65 and older have had the most deaths with COVID-19 infections, but that's still a fairly significant death rate for people that are younger. And though young adults without pre-existing conditions do better with COVID, something unsettling is showing up in many young athletes' cardiac MRIs. Right, so there has been a pretty impressive uh, number of people that have had COVID-19 that have had myocarditis or inflammation. Um, It it causes systemic inflammation, but specifically of the heart. And this is the thing. It didn't matter if these student athletes had symptoms or not. A study by Dr. Kurt Daniels, the director of sports cardiology at Ohio State, found close to 15% of the student athletes he followed up with had this heart inflammation. 
Dr. Bowling says there is a varied prognosis for people who experience this complication. Fortunately, most people with myocarditis, viral myocarditis, will have, you know, will improve. They'll have a time period where they have this inflammation, but if they're young and they don't have other health conditions, they likely will recover. But there's always the risk that they may not have full recovery or maybe minimal recovery. And so there's always a spectrum with something like that. And your concern would be they have myocarditis that impairs their heart's pumping ability, how much blood it can pump, and then it remains kind of impaired or decreased. So they don't kind of come back to their baseline. And that could cause you know, long-term consequences. And with exertion, like the kind of exertion you see with young athletes, a person with myocarditis can have cardiac arrest. Now that leads to something I've stressed over and over and over again in this podcast. There is so much we don't know yet about this virus and this disease that it causes. Remember, many of the student athletes who've experienced heart inflammation had no symptoms of COVID when they had it. So what about all these other young people who get infected and show no symptoms or just experience mild illness? Is that the end of their dealings with this virus? Dr. Poling says, we just don't know yet. Uh, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. And certainly for these, this age range you know, that gets hospitalized with more severe disease, you worry about the same things that you worry about with other people that get COVID disease with severe hospitalizations. Um, you know, are they gonna have long-term pulmonary lung disease, fibrosis, inflammation? Um, if they have myocarditis that doesn't fully resolve or get back to baseline, are they gonna have what you see with an impaired heart pumping, you know, early signs of congestive heart failure and things like that. Even if you're young and healthy, there is really no way to know if you'll be one of the 5% of young people who end up in the hospital or one of those who will have no symptoms but will end up with inflammation of the heart or somewhere else or one of those who will die. There's just, there's just no way to know. So that's why colleges and universities can't play around with this virus. It would be so nice to just open up schools and to have students go back to life on and off campus like it's 2019 or like it's 1995 when I was going to school. But they just can't. And that means it's possible that some of these colleges and universities will no longer exist when the pandemic's over. In fact, truth is, some struggle to survive during good times. There are certainly some number of small liberal arts colleges that are actually going out of business pretty much every year. Katherine Epstein is the dean of the faculty at Amherst College. It's a small liberal arts school with less than 2,000 students tucked away in the Connecticut River Valley of Western Massachusetts. I actually think the most significant um, change that's going to happen for schools like Amherst is that faculty will have many more tools in their sort of toolkit for um, pedagogy. A lot of elite liberal arts schools were already reticent about purely online classes before it became a safety measure. Here in San Antonio, for example, Trinity University, a small liberal arts school with a similar enrollment to Amherst, is one of the few schools in the state that didn't offer any online classes before the pandemic, and policies like that will probably remain in place once we go back to normal. After all, small classes with lots of faculty interaction is a core part of the liberal arts business model. 
but it's a challenging model. It's very expensive. The labor costs are really high in order to maintain those essential low faculty-student ratios, it means that you have to pay people salaries. And that that's really the challenge um, in the end. Um, liberal arts colleges are very people-intensive. That's a source of their strength, but it's also the reason why they can be challenged um, financially. Right. And COVID-19 is taking a toll on the bottom line. At Amherst, they require students to get negative COVID tests before going back to campus. If they couldn't, students were placed in hotel rooms until they could. These precautions are expensive. Epstein says the university has ditched out about $12 million on COVID prevention measures on top of losing revenue from so many students living off campus. Exactly. So, yes, yeah, so that's a challenge. And keep in mind, for many schools, um, the it's the board, room and board where they make quite a bit of profit, if you like. I mean, they're, they're not making a profit per se, but that's where they're, they're getting a bunch of their revenues. And so when all the schools shut down in the spring and folks lost and colleges lost their room and board um, fees, that, that was a heavy hit. That's, that's part of, you know, that's part of our costs beyond the $12 million. But some struggling schools had a tough choice. Go remote and avoid the cost of reopening safely, but face the risk of flagging enrollment, or offer an in-person option in the hopes that enrollment stays up while facing the risk of spending a lot on COVID prevention, or maybe do neither, with students at higher risk, as well as faculty and staff and the surrounding communities. There really are no easy answers here. But have there been any easy answers anywhere about anything since March? Not really. And this is a particularly tough one because our kids are caught between the business of higher education and their health in a pandemic and the health of others. That's a rock in a hard place. So we're now expecting what Dr. White at Yale called emerging adults to not only be responsible for their own health, but that of their roommates and sweetmates or housemates and their classmates and their professors, as well as the people who live in their college cities and towns year round. That's a lot to expect of college-age kids. But if kids don't go to school, schools close. Then what? Rock? Hard place. Keeping students safe, keeping communities safe, keeping colleges open, it all comes down to the same things as it does everywhere else in the country right now. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. Avoid large crowds. Whether you're 18 or 88, we all have to do these things if we want to keep the spread slow. The message has been the same for months because that's all we really know for sure about this virus right now. These are the things that work. Listen, this isn't forever. I keep reminding myself of that every single day. Yes, your freshman is having a deeply strange start to their college career. Yes, your senior is missing out on some amazing things. But life is long, you know? There are so many wonders ahead for them after this is over. 
But for right now, we have to do these things. They have to do these things. You have to do these things. We have to look out for each other. The credits. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Special thanks this week to Texas Tech Public Media's Sarah Selv Walbrick and the Daily Texans' Megan Menchaca. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Texas Public Radio's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is the managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.